You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's UFC 217 week. Sure is. Do you feel the excitement? Well, I mean, no, but in fairness... So, I mean, so far, like, the way that you just answered that question leads me to believe that you are not, in fact, feeling the excitement. I need to set a little background for you here, though, because I come in here today pretty damn exhausted, uh, mainly owing to the fact that, see, one of my cats, my cats has been missing for a couple days. Oh, uh, really? I thought my children were about to learn some hard lessons about cats and death. Uh, because, you know, cats can disappear for a little while, but uh, yesterday, kind of inclement weather, usually it's the weather when cats choose to come inside and, uh, you know, be domesticated once again. Hadn't seen the cat in a little while, and we're thinking, all right, maybe this is it. Maybe this is when they learn about death. And then last night, you know, somewhere between 3 and 5 a.m., I'm not totally sure, the cat comes back and announces his presence to everybody, has a huge wound in his head, uh, it seems like, from fighting with another cat, really excites the household, and let's just say nobody got a whole lot of sleep thereafter. But the cat's okay, except for the head wound. You know, if you're interested in that kind of a schedule, I could loan you a six-month-old. You know what? Nah. You don't think? You don't want to make that a permanent fixture of your... uh... So despite the exhaustion, how would you rate your hype level leading up to UFC 217? Look, I'm going to get there, but I'm going to pace myself. I'm not going to get all jacked on Monday. I I can't sustain that. Monday is just more of an organizational day for you. Right. Gotta Sweat out all the Kool-Aid you drank over the weekend. Right. It's a meditative time. Maybe start thinking about watching some film. That's right. Th- I'll start thinking about it on Monday. Won't actually do it. Once again, this week's co-main event podcast is brought to you by TGT Studios. Owned and operated by third-generation woodworker and artist Kyle Miller, TGT Studios offers a unique collection of furniture, artwork, and decor. You've seen the Nixie clocks we've been talking about for a few weeks already, but Kyle is also well-known for his River series of tables and wall triptychs. The River series utilizes the organic curves of natural live-edge wood and raw materials, as well as pairing them with traditionally hand-cut glass and custom-fabricated aluminum frames, resulting in a -a one-of-a-kind piece of artwork that feels both natural and modern. I've seen them myself online, and I can vouch that they are cool as hell. The River Series triptychs are made of three sequential panels, each one flowing to the next, as the hand-cut glass follows along the live edge of the preceding piece. I really can't say enough about them. If you want to make your place look classy... Uh, you need to get some River Series up in your life. Yeah, each piece in the series is handcrafted and Kyle shot from locally sourced hardwoods found on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. Materials are harvested directly from the source with preference given the trees fallen and as a result of storms or safety concerns. Uh, you can order the exact set to suit your space on the TGT Studios website with customization options including maple or black walnut, green or blue glass, and multiple powder coating options for the frame. Each piece hangs just like you would hang a picture with no special tools or installation required. You can Contact Kyle for lead time, commissions, and custom orders are always welcome. Worldwide shipping is available. You can go to tgt-studios.com right now and use the promo code OLDDADS. That's huh. all one word, no spaces, which 
some of you longtime followers of our work may recognize as a uh, a cage potato throwback. You can get 30% off any order from TGT Studios shop, including the Nixie Clocks we told you about the last couple weeks. Uh, Kyle also has an MMA-related production coming in the new year, so sign up for the TGT Studios newsletter and be kept in the loop. You know, Kyle also wanted to send a shout-out to all the people who followed him on social media and sent him positive comments about his work. As uh, people who prom- promote and, and make stuff ourselves... Uh, ben and I can both attest that anytime anybody takes the time to say they like your work, uh, it gives you a little lift. So if you haven't followed Kyle already, you can do that now over on Instagram and Twitter, both of them at TGT Studios. If you don't know, now you know. Worth following on, on Instagram. See uh, a, lot of, a lot of cool artwork on You there. will. Yeah. He'll, he'll, you stay up, stay up to date in the know about what's happening and on the Canadian woodworking scene. Yeah. I got to know what's going on with that Bloodwood or. What's what's it called? What's the uh, the one I really like? I think Bloodwood was one. Bloodwood right? per- was Purple Heart one. Purple Heart, yeah. I gotta get me some Purple Heart. Uh, we got music again this week from MMA media guy Jared Jones and his band Life Before Science. Uh, if you like what you hear, you can check out their new EP out called Horizons. I believe we are featuring the title track off that EP today. Horizons. Oh, that's exciting. So if you like what you hear, you can download it from their Bandcamp page for just four bucks. That's lifebeforescience.bandcamp.com slash releases. And as always, if you enjoy the co-main event podcast, you can do us a serious solid by rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever platform you listen to. Uh, maybe soon to be Spotify, we hope. We'll see. We'll see. Got some irons in the fire. Uh, that stuff really does help our ranking and our rating, so lend us a hand. Write us a positive review if you've got the time. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, the build toward GSP versus Bisping is largely fizzled. Luckily for everyone involved, uh, we're probably all going to watch it anyway. And in round number two, Cody Garbrandt and TJ Dillashaw are set to scrap for the men's bantamweight title. You know, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I just get the feeling these guys don't like each other that much. And in round number three, just when you think Joanna Yajaychik is the women's strawweight division's only lovable serial killer, a video emerges of Rose Namajunas sitting alone in a room, quietly shredding on the piano. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Jonathan Roghair. Or do you think it's Roghair? You know what? I feel like you go with your instinct on this. Because it's spelled Roghair. So it is? He writes, I missed the fight, but was sad to abruptly read via play-by-play reload that Machida got mauled right out of the gate. The Machida era is obviously a solid joke on our own naivete of that time, and probably kind of always. Uh, but is it part of it also that the dragon came up short for reasons that were actually more within his control? Is there something he could have done differently, like being more aggressive and or starting at middleweight to begin with, uh, that could have made his dominance more likely and less of a butt of, less of the butt of an always relevant joke? Or would he have hit a wall in any case? I just always held out hope for him having a late resurgence, but I don't really want to see him try at this point. So Ben, obviously this, uh, Listener mail references Leota Machida's loss to Derek Brunson over the weekend at UFC Fight Night 119 from Sao Paulo uh, in an event that, that ended in a way that Brazilian fans were probably loath to see, both with uh, Damian Maia's loss to Colby Covington, which we'll talk about in a couple minutes here, but also this two-minute and 30-second knockout 
uh, by Derek Brunson of Lyoto Machida. Uh, what were your thoughts immediately coming out of this event? Well, first of all, it seems like we're doing the thing, aren't we? We're doing the thing where Lyoto Machida loses a fight and suddenly Lyoto Machida was never good. And we're trying to figure out why did Lyoto Machida suck so bad? I don't know that that's a fair characterization. I mean, if anyone is out here trying to say Lyoto Machida isn't good, uh, they didn't watch him go 15-0, and 0, See, right? that's my point. And I, okay, the, I guess I'm asking because the unstated premise of the question, what could he have done differently, is just basically like, he is somehow a failure. What could he have done to avoid that fate? And I get the thing about the Machida era. I mean, that was kind of foisted upon him uh, with... You know, Joe Rogan getting carried away, as Joe Rogan will do, see also once in a forever kind of athlete, Ronda Rousey. But, you know, I don't know how much you want to blame Lyoto Machida for that one. And I, you know, there are some things, sure, that may have made a difference, like starting at middleweight, but let's not forget, his bro, Anderson Silva, was holding it down at middleweight, so it made sense for him to go as a light heavyweight. And for a while there, he was really successful as a light heavyweight. I mean, I think, Obviously, when you rely on being a really precise counter striker like he is, there's plenty of ways for that to backfire on you, both like on the scorecards if it goes to a close fight, or if you get somebody who just won't play right into your hands there and doesn't get frustrated. And then I think now what we're seeing more than anything is age. You know, he, I don't think he ever had a super solid chin. Uh, and, you know, for a long time he didn't need one because defensively he was so sound and he didn't take a lot of unnecessary risks. Uh, but I think, you know, nobody's chin really usually gets better with age in this game. And I think what we're seeing now is he can't weather those blows uh, even as well as he used to. Yeah, and like you said, we got to keep in mind he's going about to turn 40 right. here in the next few months. And it's been out a while. And really, if you look back on it, like let's just, if we just go back to the loss to Phil Davis at UFC 163, which was in August of 2013, was his last fight at light heavyweight right before he dropped to middleweight. At the time, Leota Machida was only 19 and 4, right? And so, uh, you know, at, at the time that he was like 36 years of age, that ain't too bad. He was, he was just, recently removed from beating Randy Couture and Ryan Bader and Dan Henderson at light heavyweight. So he was still a very accomplished and successful fighter up to that point. And even though he drops the middleweight and, and he does, he, he has sort of like a flash of, of resurgence of success there. You really only see things start to kind of come apart on him in the last couple of years when frankly, uh, things should start to come apart on a professional athlete who's 38, 39 years old, about to turn 40. And against some tough, tough guys. Against too. tough guys. Like Derek Brunson is the first person that he has lost to who is not either a once-in-future champion or like Yoel Romero, sort of uh, a unilaterally regarded elite contender. Uh, and especially for Lyoto Machida, whose fighting style is entirely dependent on athleticism and precision. Like th his entire game only works if he can be elusive make the other guy miss and then land his own pinpoint counter-strike. Like right. that's a style that I think we've been saying for a while. We just didn't think was going to age very well. So now that he's up there around 40 years old, I don't know that we can be that surprised that he's one in four in his last five fights. That said, I do agree with you. And, and like, I think this is a good question from Jonathan Rog Roger, but, uh, are you changing your uh, pronunciation? Jonathan now? Roger, but, uh, it is, you know, you can't say like, oh, should he have started out in middleweight? That's just not really fair to look back at the start of a guy's career and think uh, this guy who was the champion, let's not forget, at 205 pounds, should not have fought in that division 
uh, to begin with. There's a lot of things that are clear now in hindsight that may not have been clear in, you know, 2007, 2008. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if you were, you know, the, when you see him now, it doesn't seem like the size is a huge factor so much as just like he, you know, this one with Derek Brunson, he gets hit with that one good left hand that he just can't quite get out of the way of. And then he, is right there, wobbly, and never really gets back in the fight. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I think some of that is just that he, he has never taken punches super well, but when you get just a little bit older, you know, all you got to be, Chad, is be a little slow, be a little late. And how you ain't never going to be slow, ain't never going to be late. You know what I'm saying? Uh, not really, yes, but, I mean, I, I understand the point that you're trying to make there. Uh, I mean, I think we we need to give Lyoto Machida credit for how good he was early on. You know, starting out sixteen and zero, being at nineteen and four, as I said, being the champion, and really at this point, like maybe not necessarily. I don't know that you can draw a direct line between the Lyoto Machida fighting style and somebody like Conor McGregor or Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. But clearly, like, Lyoto Machida makes karate cool in the UFC. When he started doing his thing, not very many people uh, were fighting from that open stance and using movement around the cage really to their advantage. And now you see it as, as you know, a lot more common than it was when he first started to do that. So I think you kind of got to give Lyoto Machida credit either as the father of that style or as a guy who was kind of ahead of his ahead of his time uh, in, in terms of his striking ability and this, uh, the strategy and tactics that he used on his feet. Yeah. Well, also though, that reminds me, you know, the Machida era reference. Now you saying all the stuff where basically what you're trying to say is how elusive Leota Machida is. He did seem to get like unfortunate, um, MMA inside jokes attached to him because the, you know, for a while, remember elusive was the, like, we're trying to say boring and we don't want to say boring. You know, and so, okay, we'll call him very elusive. Uh, that, the Machida era thing, yeah, he did kind of for, especially for a guy who always seemed like a nice guy and didn't really, you know, seem to deserve at, to be the butt of as many unwitting jokes as he became. And you didn't even mention his urine. God damn it, I didn't. That's, but just, see, that one, he walked into that one. Well, I don't know what you expect there, He bro. opened himself up for that. Uh, but I think, and, and I think there are criticisms you could make of the guy, as you said, like elusiveness as a synonym for, for boringness. It seemed like Leota Machida would win by devastating knockout, like he did with the crane kick KO of Randy Couture, where man's tooth go flying. Randy Couture's newly capped teeth comes <laughs> flying out of his mouth. Or it seemed like he would at times like recede into sort of listlessness, and not that he didn't have an effective style of fighting, but it kind of felt like a style of fighting that wasn't necessarily tailor made to win two out of three rounds in a fifteen round fight, yeah. fifteen minute fight. You Could know, what feel I mean? like nullification at times. So I don't know. We'll have to see what happens with Leota Machida moving forward. I don't know if he's going to call it a career or or uh, soldier on a little bit more, but it does sort of feel like uh, we have at least entered the twilight stage of the Machida era, so to speak. Next question this week comes to us from Jason Montreal. He writes, is it me or is there something uh, of the asshole? <laughs> is it me or is there something of the asshole to a guy who continues to punch an un unconscious man in the head when it's clear that he's not going to rise and fight anytime soon? I know, quote unquote, keep fighting till the ref says to stop. Uh, I counted three unnecessary punches at least. It's all over indeed. What say you? And obviously he's talking about this same fight, the stoppage here. Uh, Derek Brunson stuns Lyoto Machida with a left hook, puts him down with another left hook, and then during the finishing sequence knocks him out with a, a third left and then continues to pound away until the ref pulls him off. 
I don't know that it's a fair criticism of Derek Brunson to say that he he went too long. What do you think, Ben? I thought it was a, a fine finishing sequence. I think it's asking an awful lot of people to, for them to be able to recognize in that heated, frantic moment to be able to look down and be like, oh, he's unconscious. I should go ahead and stop now. I mean, that happens sometimes, and it's cool when, when people are able to do that and kind of save their opponent any unnecessary punishment. But I don't fault anybody who is just in that excited, I really want to finish this fight and not let this guy off the hook moment. Because think about everything that's at stake there. Career-wise, you know, you're in the main event. An awful lot of money is the difference between winning and losing. Uh, you see that you have this opportunity. You're going to keep punching and keep trying to exploit that opportunity until somebody tells you to knock it off. So I don't really... I think people maybe overestimate how easy it is or how aware you even are that the guy is out in that kind of a situation. No, I agree with you. And what do we think of Derek Brunson now moving forward? Obviously a much younger man than Leota Machida, I think 33 years old. I just said at one time Leota Machida's 19-4 and record was pretty impressive. I guess you got to sort of say the same thing about Derek Brunson now, improving to 18-5 and with this knockout of Leota Machida. He's been pretty good in most instances. Uh, and aside from the split decision loss to Kendall Grove at Show Fight 20, Back in 2012, his losses are to Jacare Souza, Yoel Romero, Robert Whitaker, and then uh, the decision to the aging Anderson Silva. Questionable decision, you Questionable decision. It looked like, and I think we mentioned this on last week's show, maybe Leoto Machida was trying to get some of that Anderson Silva home cooking. He'll have some of what he's having, uh, and it just <laughs> didn't work out for him. What do we make of Derek Brunson moving forward? A guy who can look devastating at times, but then I think as we saw in that Robert Whitaker fight, uh, sometimes look n not as great. Yeah, well, I think you can maybe see two sides of the coin there when you look at Robert Whitaker and then the loss to Anderson Silva. Because with the Robert Whitaker fight, a lot of us were kind of baffled by what seemed like an over-aggressive and reckless game plan where he was just like, I'm going to run face first at this guy and see what happens. And what happens is, turns out Bobby Knuckles going to turn your lights out for you if you do something like that. And then against Anderson Silva, where it seemed a way more cautious performance, I mean, you know, maybe in part because, hey, it's Anderson freaking Silva you're dealing with. You want to treat that guy a little carefully, even if he is getting older. But also because maybe he felt like he had gone a little too crazy and been a little too impatient in the last fight, uh, and so it backfires in the other direction. So I don't, you know, if you tell me that at 33 he's still kind of figuring out where he wants to be, I'd find that believable. And I think that he's one of those guys in this division that is probably going to be hanging around at or near the top for a long time. It's just. It's such a clusterfuck up there right now, though. Just trying to figure out the pecking order, what's going to happen, you know, who who gets to go first, and what it takes to get like in a good position in line behind the top contender. It's really tough to figure out. So, I mean, if I'm Derek Brunson right now, I guess I'm just trying to look for a high-profile fight and trying not to lose. Well, and uh, Daniel Cormier pried a Luke Rockhold callout out of the the mouth of Derek Brunson there in the in the post-fight interview. Uh, which, when he says it, I feel like you think, well, that's crazy, Derek Brunson. They're not going to give you Luke Rockhold. But then you actually look at the UFC middleweight rankings. Uh, Derek Brunson comes into this fight ranked number seven and has already fought a lot of the guys in front of him, including uh, Robert Whitaker, Yoel Romero, Jacare Souza, Anderson Silva. So you got Chris Weidman floating around out there. And then you got Luke Rockhold all the way up at, at number two. So I don't know if you wanted to give... 
uh, Derek Brunson, somebody like Kelvin Gastelum, depending on what happens in his fight against Anderson Silva or uh, David, the executive branch moving forward. But uh, you're right. You look around at this middleweight division and, and of course, everybody's waiting to see what happens in the George St. Pierre, Michael Bisping fight uh, this weekend at UFC 217. But uh, and not just what happens in that fight, but what the winner actually exactly, decides right, to yeah, do with the itself. direction of the middleweight division moving forward. But I think, you know, a couple of days removed from it, you look at the list and it doesn't necessarily seem like Derek Brunson versus Luke Rockhold is all that crazy. No, not at all. I, especially if you, if you're Luke Rockhold and you just went from, you know, that fight with David, the executive branch. And then, you know, Derek Brunson right now would seem like a logical progression kind of step up. And if you're Luke Rockhold and you're thinking, well, I'll just sit around and wait until I get my revenge shot at Michael Bisping, bro, that could be a while. I don't know if you really want to wait that long, especially if you've already waited as long as Luke Rockhold has. Next question this week comes to us from Arash in Van City. He writes, so... And shout out to Arash for including a phonetic pronunciation for you. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's good. I, I enjoy that. Everybody needs to take note there. He writes, so Colby Covington, does he have X-Pac heat? I mean, I get what he's trying to do here to make money in this biz. Uh, the people either got to love you or hate you. He's obviously chosen the latter, but something seems a bit off. I was a huge Anderson Silva fan when Chael Sonnen started his feud with him, and I really wanted Anderson to take him out in both fights, but I had to give it to Chael for how he went about talking trash. I don't know. I guess Chael did it artfully. He always put a smile on my face uh, when he would go off on Anderson. The same goes for Conor McGregor. While it seems like Colby is, f is fumbling around and I'm always left cringing, what say you, gentlemen? I would say, Arash, you have properly diagnosed yes, uh, what is happening with Colby Covington here. Uh, though I did think, like, in the wake of this win over Damian Maya, uh, Covington gets on the mic and, and I, you know, fumbles fumes through a, a quote-unquote promo where he says uh, Brazil is a dump and the people there I believe he called them filthy animals filthy animals the only cool part about that I thought was the sort of like overhead cam scene of security rushing Colby Covington out yes, of the arena as he is being pelted with refuse as that was happening I was thinking to myself okay this seems like something but while Colby Covington is actually speaking I have to admit I'm embarrassed by it. You know what? But but I do think that like, – I think he is kind of separating people into two camps, maybe two and a half camps. One camp is the people who hate him because they're playing right into the gimmick that he's trying to do, which is trying to make you hate him. Uh, two is the people like you who are so kind of embarrassed by it. You're like, Jesus, could somebody punch this guy in the mouth? Uh but that works too, I think. And then the the half is the people who are just like, you know, I'm I'm into this, or I'm going to pretend to be into this because I'm a contrarian, uh, or just because I I love Rick Rude and I kind of miss him, and so I love anybody to show up in in a town and tell everybody there that they're sweat hogs. And but I I don't think like I think that this proves really the effectiveness of. Just being like an outsized, like heel personality, and especially like in a crowded division where there's a lot of good fighters going on. Even if you do it badly, it still kind of works, and especially works in Brazil, where you know there's just a couple easy buttons you can push in Brazil, and the next thing you know, they're throwing beers at you. And so he went out there and pushed those buttons, and they're big, bright red blinking buttons. So it's really hard to miss them, even if you don't do execute it completely perfectly. You still get the desired reaction in the end. You know, I, I do, though, I feel like there's a lot of people in the aftermath of something like this. Like, he managed to make teammates mad at him. You know, he's got, he 
trains down at ATT, and there's guys, a bunch of Brazilians down at ATT, not super happy with Colby Covington after something like that. And I can see people being like, okay, even if we recognize that it's a gimmick, is it cool for the guy to go out there in Brazil and call them all a bunch of filthy animals? I mean, the UFC has said that it's going to review the comments. Uh, you know, they see Brazil as a valuable marketplace. Like, is this still, like, even if we recognize he's doing a routine, does that mean that we give it a pass? But I think that if you're a guy in his situation, you do recognize that indifference is the greatest enemy. You have to get people to recognize you. You have to get people to want to see a fight. And I don't see how you can say that this did not do that for, you know, even if it says something terrible and stupid about the rest of us for reacting the way we do to it. And I think it does say something terrible and stupid about the rest of you. Uh, because I'm not buying it, man. Like, I don't... This, the, I'll be honest with you. The Colby Covington trash talk situation does nothing for me. Like, uh, it doesn't I, make you want to see somebody beat him up. Nope. Not at all. Like if he fights Tyron Woodley next, uh, if he is allowed to jump the line and get into a title fight, like fine, whatever. I'll watch it. I like to watch UFC title fights, but like, I'm not more interested in Colby Covington because of what he's doing. Because to me, he's just like, he's, well, two things. I think one, he's demonstrating how just like, loathsomely easy it is to do this yes like uh he's not even that good at it no but which is also kind of the appeal but okay the benefit or the he's benefiting from a vacuum at the top right now a vacuum in the mma news cycle frankly because conor mcgregor is out and we don't know what what he's going to do next ronda rousey is probably gone forever the lead up to george st pierre versus michael bisping has kind of been uh, fumbled away against all possible odds and like dudes like Colby Covington and Mike Perry are kind of like the most I'm not even gonna say interesting although I do think Mike Perry is interesting I don't I don't think Colby Covington is interesting but I feel like just because he is going through the motions and saying these words we're all like oh we have to give Colby Covington the attention that we that he do, it requires for these outlandish statements when I feel like Man, we could just as easily just ignore the guy, except that he beat Damian Maya, which See, okay, like, and that's puts the other him part. in the news. Yeah, I, and you know he has a good winning streak going. He goes out there and he beats Damian Maya, who was last seen challenging for the UFC welterweight title. So it's hard then to go from like, okay, it's absurd to even think that he is ready to challenge for the UFC welterweight title if he just beat, you know, and pretty clearly I thought beat the last guy to challenge for it. So I think that that at least puts him in that conversation and. I guess what I wonder, like, for one thing, I wonder why Tyron Woodley is not any more enthusiastic about this. Like, as you see his response on Twitter, where he was just like, like, the UFC was trying to do its thing where it's like, oh, here's a funny gif about what's going on, about Colby Covington kind of kicking down the door and calling out Tyron Woodley, and him responding to the UFC Twitter account to be like, this is sad, what are you doing? Like, this is why this sport is becoming a joke. Right. And if I'm Tyron Woodley, I would think that you ought to embrace this. Because, for one thing, I think you probably beat the brakes off Colby Covington, especially watching the way he fought against Demi Maia. You go out there, kind of just walking Tyron Woodley down, lunging with those kind of off-balance left hands, uh, and not doing a whole lot of damage, but just trying to you know pile up the, the work rate on him. I think Tyron Woodley fires back with one big shot and knocks you out, honestly. So I would think that he would like the matchup in that regard. And I'd also think, if you're Tyron Woodley... You need somebody, you need to go out there against somebody that people hate, whether they hate him because they think, you know, like, oh, grr, here's the heel and I, I'm going to, you know, play that game, or they hate him, uh, or just feel like this is stupid uh, and it does nothing for me. I wish this guy would shut up and I don't think we should have to give him this attention. Like, I think either way, there's a lot of 
different reasons that people would come to that fight wanting to see Tyrone Woodley go out there and win, which is not something that happens to Tyrone Woodley that often these days. No, yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. I feel like Tyrone Woodley probably should be on the bandwagon trying to promote a fight against Colby Covington. I saw that this morning Covington was on uh, the MMA hour and uh, the Ariel had offered Tyron Woodley the chance to come on to sort of like respond to Colby Covington and, and, and that Woodley turned it down, said he didn't want to give any shine to Colby Covington, which on one hand, I guess is a thing I understand. But I also agree with you that if you're Tyron Woodley and your championship bouts haven't been the most uh, high selling UFC title fights in the world, I think you would want to embrace uh, any kind of opportunity to to spike the buy rate. But I guess maybe at the end of the day, Tyron Woodley feels, as I do, that it's just sort of maddening that we're going to make Colby Covington into a dude uh, just because there ain't nothing else. Right, and fair enough. But then at the end, what are you, if imagine it's uh, Tyron Woodley and Rafael Dos Anjos at the end of the day. I'm, you know, imagine the eyes rolling at UFC headquarters when they're trying to put together the hype for that one. Both, both of those guys just staring at each other and, and nodding respectfully. Like, that's, it's just going to be tough to sell, especially coming off of Tyron Woodley's last two fights, uh, which frankly were both boring as all hell. I don't think that you're going to have an easy time of it pitching something like that. Next question this week from Matteo Darmian. Oh, yeah. Matteo Darmian, a, uh, Italian footballer. Oh, really? Yeah. That's right. One I, of my faves. I believe uh, played for uh, Milan and then now plays for Manchester United. Okay. Uh, he Not, writes, Good to hear from him. Is this the end for dad bod Maya? Gassed early, one-dimensional, and doesn't talk trash. Uh, doubt the UFC will ever give him a title shot and seems to want that more than he wants to fight for money. Oh, he seems to want that. Sad, dot, 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 sad times. So Matteo Darmian, very busy. Can't can't put any personal prepositions in any of his uh he's a busy guy in any of his sentences premier league season going on man what do we think about damian maya here not the greatest performance against colby covington uh touched him up on the feet i will say uh and seemed more interested in in standing here than he had in a while but uh ultimately unable to uh really impose his game on colby covington and did seem to come up short in the gas tank department a little bit here which maybe we should not be surprised that a guy who's been in the game as long as, as Damian Maya uh, might start to Dan Henderson it a little bit here down the stretch. Yeah, and when, you know, when you're getting hit and you're also shooting for takedowns and getting stuffed over and over again, that'll, that'll sap anybody's gas tank pretty quickly. Uh, you, know, you know me, I would love to see Damian Maya just retire to sell those VHS tapes of jiu-jitsu for MMA and just go the kind of elder statesman route because he's such a likable guy and like you just you know when you listen to Demi Maya talk you get the sense that like a gym should just pay him to stand around in a robe and say wise things uh and every once in a while help somebody uh refine their guillotine choke because yeah at this point if you're holding out hope that he's going to get a UFC title seems like the door's been pretty firmly slammed shut on that I'd hate to see him just be used as fodder for other people to build their names off of as he gets older I personally, I mean, if I could have it my way, he just goes and be, becomes like jujitsu, MMA jujitsu, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, I agree with you. He, he does seem like the kind of dude that you don't want to see overstay his welcome for, and, and for reasons that we think he seems nice. Uh, so it seems like maybe Demi and Maya could transition to some kind of television role in, in Brazil or elsewhere. Uh, but I'm just spitballing. I don't know if that's anything 
uh, he would want to be involved in. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. November is already upon us, Ben, which means it'll be the month when many men traditionally forego shaving to raise awareness around a host of men's health issues, including prostate and testicular cancer. This year, our longtime sponsors at Fulton Rourke want to give the power back to the people, giving men the right to choose their own way to mark Movember. Want to grow a big bushy mustache? Do it! Full beard? Cool. But if you feel goofy about abandoning your morning grooming routine and want to keep it clean shaven, you do you, my friend. Right now, you can head over to the website amansrighttochoose.com, that's the number two, the numeral, and watch a short video not only about how Fulton & Rourke supports your right to experience Movember any way you please, but also to announce that this month, 15% of all Fulton & Rourke profits will go to toward funding cancer research, treatment, and prevention. But wait, that's not all. That's right, Chad. This month, the CME is partnering with Fulton and Rourke to raise awareness for men's health and also get some cool prize packs out to our listeners. As of this moment, we'll be sponsoring the Great Movember Men's Grooming and Styling Contest. The way it works is pretty easy. Every week during the month of November, Fulton and Rourke will give away a free prize pack of their world-class men's grooming products to the CME listener who shows the most ingenuity, creativity, and stick to with their grooming routine. It's really simple to enter. If you've got a particularly inspired look going on about the head and shoulders right now with your facial hair, your hairdo, whatever, we want to see what you got going on. Are you planning to celebrate Movember the traditional way by growing a sweet stash? Send us your before and after picture. Basically, during November, you can tweet a picture of your facial hair to me and Ben. That's at Chad Dundas and at Ben Folks MMA. And once a week, we'll pick a winner Announce it on the podcast, and the dudes at Fulton and Rourke will send you some free stuff. If you're not active on social media, don't worry. Just email a picture to comaineventpodcast at gmail.com, and it works just the same. That's one winner every week, but to be considered, you got to send us those pics. Get started on your stash and sideburns today. If you need to re-up on your product, now is a great time. Just go to FultonRourke.com and grab what you need, and 15% will go to cancer research, treatment, and prevention. So, Ben, we're finally going to get it this weekend. Michael Bisping defending the middleweight title against George St. Pierre at long last. This fight's been sort of on again, off again. Have you been able to maintain excitement slash interest slash hype level? You know, once we actually get down to it, I'm sure that we're all going to be interested. I mean, there there is a lot of interesting stuff going on here. Even though once you can get past knowing the just 
obvious cash grab nature of putting together this fight in the first place. And once you could just kind of get into the realm where you're just thinking about the fight, you know, and the actual physical reality of the fight when they lock the cage door behind them. I mean, it is interesting to me to see is what kind of shape is George St. Pierre going to be in? What's he going to look like after four years away? Can his game plan, you know, or at least what we understand of it from when last we saw him, can it work against somebody like Michael Bisping? And, you know, if he does go out there, George St. Pierre it becomes a two-division champion, comes back after four years away and immediately claims the middleweight title. Where does that put him in the all-time greatest conversation? And then on the flip side, you got Michael Bisping, who, you know, sure, there's going to be some asterisks around his uh, title reign if he doesn't at some point defend it against an actual middleweight contender. But he will, if he beats George St. Pierre, get to walk around the rest of his goddamn life saying that he beat Anderson Silva and George St. Pierre. What about that? Yeah, like if you were going to plan out the end of a career for for Michael Bisping, uh, it would be hard to do better than, say, beats Anderson Silva, wins the title from Luke Rockhold via first-round KO, uh, avenges his, you know, most highlighted career loss against Dan Henderson, and then beats George St. Pierre. Uh, it would hard be hard to improve on that, I think, if you were Michael Bisping. I would agree with you, though, Ben, that I think most of the intrigue here surrounds George St. Pierre just for the very simple fact that he returns after the long hiatus that he announced after defeating Johnny Hendricks way back in November of 2013. And that raises a lot of questions about the one-time greatest welterweight of all time. And the reason that I think I would stop short from saying that this fight is nothing more than a cash grab is just because it is a pretty intriguing matchup, even if you just deal with it as a, a contrast in styles because you have George St. Pierre, obviously the former 170 pound champion, uh, moving up to 185 and a guy who really made his bread and butter, uh, through takedowns and top control and just being sort of a smothering force at 170 pounds. And now he fights a pretty big middleweight in Michael Bisping and a guy who's, you know, maybe he has takedown defense that is underrated. I think he's kind of hard to take down. Uh, and on his feet works a very high volume, high pressure, wearying striking style. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see a, what George St. Pierre's game plan is coming into this fight. And B, if it is the traditional George St. Pierre game plan, can he take Michael Bisping down and, and positionally dominate this fight or stop him with a submission? Yeah. Okay. What do you expect to see? Do you think that we're going to go out there and see jab, jab, Superman punch, blast double from George St. Pierre? I th well, don't you think George St. Pierre's only chance is to try to work the George St. Pierre game plan? Like, I don't think he can hang with a bigger, more technical striker in Michael Bisping over 25 minutes, do you? I feel like that would kind of be a suicide mission for George St. Pierre. Yeah. I also, though, I wonder, like... If, do you think that George St. Pierre is banking on finishing this on the, on the ground, or do you think that he looks at it kind of like, you know, one of those fights like with Nick Diaz or, or Carlos Condit or somebody where you're going to take him down, you're going to work that, that ground and pound, but you're going to plan to be here all night? Because I think that one of the things that Michael Bisping has done pretty effectively and that he doesn't get enough credit for is Michael Bisping will wade through whatever kind of punishment he needs to, and he's probably not going to get tired, and he's going to be there for all five rounds. He's not easy to put away, and he can he can beat people with just cardio and toughness. And I I don't know if George St. Pierre coming back after four years away 
necessarily can keep up with that. I, I would think that the later the fight goes, the more the advantage goes to Michael Bisping. I would agree with that, not only because of size and Michael Bisping's takedown defense and ring rust, but also you just think about the years that George St. Pierre was really dominating the welterweight division when he was beating the Jake Shields and Josh Koscheck's of the world. Uh, you know, it was 2009, 2010, and I think over the, the preceding six years, uh, a lot has changed in the sport. I think that, that takedown defense is a lot better now. I think people are just flat tougher to take down. And I think that people are more prepared now to fight uh, an entire 25-minute fight on the feet maybe than they were back when George St. Pierre was in his heyday. But you asked me about George St. Pierre's game plan, and I would only say this. Have you noticed in the copious training footage, uh, photos that George St. Pierre posts? Like, George St. Pierre is always going to give you a photo of a bunch of dudes uh, in a lineup on the mats, half of them on their knees, half of them standing behind, and he'll write great training, you know, with so and so at TriStar. Yes. That's basically the only thing George St. Pierre does on social media. A uh, lot of jujitsu dudes in the George St. Pierre training partner lineups leading up to this fight, which makes me think if you're George St. Pierre, you probably know well that taking Michael Bisping down a bunch of times over the course of five rounds is probably going to be a tough order. And I think if I had to peer inside the dark place of George St. Pierre, he's planning a takedown and a submission victory uh, as quick as he can get one. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure that would be very nice. I'm sure it would be ideal. Well, that's what you asked me. Do you think, right. I, do you think he's planning to like be there all night in a Nick Diaz kind of way? I would say I think no. I think the plan is to try to catch Michael Bisping in something on the ground, which you know, just considering their backgrounds would probably have to be considered Michael Bisping's uh, weak spot. Even though when you look at his losses, he's only got one loss by submission. And that one was the first fight with Luke Rockhold. And it was more a result of what Rockhold was doing to him in the stand-up game than anything else. I think that opened up the, the possibility for that submission. So I don't know. Do you have to do it that way? Or can you just take him down and catch him in something as he's trying to get up? Uh, or just kind of you know take him down in old school, pass the guard, you know, go side control the full mount, punch him until he turns his back, and then take the choke. It's hard for me to see it being that simple uh, against somebody like Michael Bisping. I don't know, but one thing I do wonder, I feel like Michael Bisping, more than George St. Pierre, is at a real crossroads here. Because George St. Pierre, he comes back, he loses this fight. You know, big deal. Like, he, he's already, he's still going to be remembered, at least right now, as the greatest welterweight of all time. If he go, comes back and loses to a middleweight, after all this time away, people will have all kinds of things they can point to to be like, George St. Pierre still a great fighter, age, ring rust, size, all made a difference. But if Michael Bisping, you know, has that one title defense to Dan Henderson where she was kind of lucky to escape in one piece, uh, Dan Henderson wasn't anywhere near top contender status when he got it. And then if he goes in here and he loses to a welterweight who basically Randy Couture, Tim Sylvia would him and picked him out and said, okay, now there's an easy middleweight champion, now I'll come back. If he loses that fight, does Michael Bisping go down as like the punchline of UFC middleweight champions? Uh, if he loses to George St. Pierre, that would be a tough one, man. That for the for the Bisping legacy. Does that does when you put it like that, that does make it seem like Michael Bisping is at kind of like a uh a pretty important tipping point here because uh if he wins this, then like we said earlier in the round, he closes out his career on a on a 
pretty uh, impressive streak. And yet if he loses it, then he lost to the dude from 170 who's coming up to to try to take his belt. Whereas if you're George St. Pierre and you lose this fight to Michael Bisping, I think you can pretty easily make the case you can turn around and fight Anderson Silva or Conor McGregor or Tyron Woodley. Uh, kind of no questions asked. Uh, so yeah, man, that does make this seem kind of important for Bisping. You know, he's he's the all-time UFC wins leader right now. And in sort of... uh maybe uh, surprising fashion held on to sole possession of that due to losses by uh, Donald Cerrone and Damian Maya in the last two weeks. So if he wins this, he'll be at 21 UFC wins, which is an awful gosh darn lot. Uh, and, and like, I think either way, you know, let's just say hypothetically Bisping walks away after this fight. I think you've got to respect what he's done in the UFC as being a guy who was never really respected, always the most called out middleweight on the roster for his right. entire career, and yet is going to come out of it, like I said, as the all-time UFC wins leader, the UFC middleweight champion, a win over Anderson Silva, maybe a win over George St. Pierre. Like, uh, you couldn't have imagined much better for Michael Bisping when he came off, what was it, the second season or third season of The Ultimate Fighter? Uh, he's he's kind of made the most of it. You got to be honest. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think that you're right, that he has never really gotten the respect that he deserves and probably never really will. Uh, you know, even if he beats – well, you know, if he beats George St. Pierre and then he actually sticks around and defends successfully against somebody like Bobby Knuckles, well, then everybody will have to shut up and give the man his due daps. Uh, but I do think that, you know, if he is thinking legacy-wise and rather just, you know, other than just paycheck-wise, then this is a pretty crucial fight for him. Um, I also, though, wonder – if this does not do the kind of big financial numbers that everybody expects, both you know for the fighters involved and for the UFC, is this the one that makes people uh, reevaluate their strategy? You know, the kind of quick cash grab strategy. Maybe, man. I think it's been so surprising just that this the lead up to this fight has kind of floundered around. That the return of George St. Pierre has been somewhat fumbled when it seems like a, an automatic slam dunk and easy story to tell. What I do you was think it is though. What do you think that there? That's, is it like complacency? Is it just like because there seems to be a lack of enthusiasm yeah, from the, the UFC's part? I think that's a little bit of complacency. I think it's a little bit of this fight took a really long time to come together. Uh, maybe it's a little bit that it got overshadowed by stuff like Mayweather McGregor. Uh, that it, it's going to happen in the middle of this kind of strange lull in the UFC's programming to end the year when it already feels like uh, interest is sort of at an all-time low just because of uh, a lot of the more uh, uninspired and nameless fight cards that they've been rolling out. I was surprised to see also uh, that apparently there is some sort of marketing information that the UFC has that says uh, the average UFC fan now has just not heard of George St. Pierre, which seems strange to me. Uh, but maybe also understandable since the UFC doesn't always do a great job, uh, celebrating its history, I guess you could say. Uh, I don't know, man. Like, I think that there's a lot of factors you could, you could potentially blame it on. But then again, if George St. Pierre still pulls, uh, considerable numbers from the Canadian market and these, this fight goes out and does 500, 600,000 pay-per-view buys, I would have to think that, that would sort of be a success, right? I mean, it seems to me like the number is 500,000. If yeah. you go over 500,000, it's a success. If you go under 500,000, I think you got to look at it and, and ask what happened. Yeah, I, I agree that that's probably where the And I, I'll take the over there, but not by a whole lot. Yeah, I think that's probably right. What to you would be the most surprising outcome here? You know, barring a piece of space junk falls out of the sky and crushes Michael Bisping. What, what, what would happen where you would be like, huh, I did not see that coming? 
Why I gotta crush Michael Bisping? Why couldn't it be aliens getting some revenge on George St. Pierre? Too elusive. It's too elusive. <laughs> we told you to keep your mouth shut, George. Uh, George St. Pierre first round knockout. I agree. I think that that would be the most surprising thing. Do you think George St. Pierre can take down Michael Bisping for 25 minutes? I think he he can get him down. I don't think he can get him down over and over again like that. I mean, I think that that's just it's going to wear on him uh, to you know try to keep doing that. By the way, if you're looking at the prop betting odds, uh, Saint Pierre by TKO or KO plus seven hundred. Bisping by TKO TK, or TKO or knockout plus three hundred five. Really, you get three to one odds on a Bisping stoppage via strikes. Yeah, wow. Uh, Saint okay. Pierre by submission only slightly uh, more likely according to the betting odds. Uh, plus was six twenty five. Yeah, plus six twenty five. Saint Pierre by submission. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll get out of here. We'll move on to round number two. Ben, I kind of tipped my hand on my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? this week, but uh, I got up this morning when I woke up and I checked out a uh, one of the major MMA news sites that will remain nameless for the time being. But I couldn't help but notice that in the top, uh, what they refer to as the carousel in the business, the top stories basically up at the top of the uh, website, there were five, one, two, three, four, five Colby Covington-related stories at the top of this website, to which I thought, are you fucking kidding me? We're really going to do this. We are really going to let Colby Covington get away with this. Because we all know what he's doing. We all know that he knows what he's doing. And we all know that he knows that we know what he's doing. Okay. And it's still working. Yep. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. You're feeding into it right now. I'm about to do the same. When I say, are you fucking kidding me, to... Do you see this statement from Ricardo Laborio, ATT, kind of long-time uh, coach and co-founder? Uh, I mentioned that a lot of Colby Covington's teammates over there at ATT not super happy with his comments about Brazil being a dump uh, and the people being filthy animals. Um, but a statement on Instagram from Ricardo Laborio. I feel that I must make a statement in light of the comments made by Colby Covington, along with the amount of messages sent to me from Brazil, the United States, and from all over the world. I'm here to state that I am no longer with American Top Team. Absolutely. Also, I absolutely do not condone any behavior that instigates hate, prejudice, or bullying of any kind. It upsets me to see the sport taking this direction of blatant disrespect. It's unsportsmanlike, but it also fosters and promotes a culture of cruelty towards others. Combat sports should always represent the qualities of humility, empathy, and respect. I dedicated my life to the martial arts and to the formation and growth of this team. I cannot discuss at this time the reasons for my departure from ATT. At some point, I will. For the time being, I want the members of ATT to know that they will always be in my heart. Heart emoji. And mine is just kind of a stunned. Are you fucking kidding me? Wow. You fucking kidding me? It's one of the OGs of that shit walking away from ATT. And... Throwing out a little bit of shade about the culture of cruelty to others, Chet. Fucking kidding me. Fucking kidding me. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Round two of the co-main event podcast this week is brought to you by our new friends at Freshly. 
If your family is anything like mine, you've got a full shelf of cookbooks in the kitchen, and every single week you and your partner sit down and try to puzzle out exactly what you're going to feed your whole family every single night for the next seven days. It gets tedious, it gets repetitive, and the whole process takes a lot of time. Luckily, Freshly is here to make all our dreams come true. Freshly is a meal delivery service that sends fully prepared fresh meals for the whole week straight to your door. They do all the prep, leaving you no shopping, no chopping, no cleanup. It's easy. That's right, Jed. All you have to do is go to Freshly.com, sign up for one of their four different meal plans, choose your meals for the week from the rotating menu, and Freshly sends them directly to you in a refrigerated box. Then all you have to do is just heat and eat. Each fresh meal is ready to go in about three minutes, so they're perfect for people who don't have a lot of time to spend messing around in the kitchen. All the meals are fully prepared before you get them. You just have to heat them up. Freshly is an easy and convenient option for eating healthier every day, and it tastes great, too. Always fresh, never frozen, a fridge full of fresh meals for the week. Sounds like music to my ears, to be honest with you. Every meal Freshly prepares is 100% all-natural with no artificial flavors or preservatives, no refined sugars, no gluten. What's even better than all that is that right now, Freshly is offering some real savings exclusively for co-main event podcast listeners. Just go to the website, Freshly.com, and use the promo code MAINEVENT. That's MAINEVENT, all one word, no spaces, no capitals, to not only get $20 off your first order, but $20 off your second order, too. That's $40 in savings just for you exclusively for being a friend of the CME. Just go to Freshly.com today to get started. Well, Chad, it's flying a little bit under the radar because of all the other what have you going on, but you ask me, maybe on paper one of the best and most intriguing matchups we've seen in the UFC all year. In the co-main event here, you got UFC men's bantamweight champion Cody Garbrandt taking on former training partner turned snake in the grass, T.J. Dillashaw. Now, this one to me, I mean, if you just kind of strip away all the other, you know, hype and, and the noise surrounding this fight card and everything else that's going on, this might be the one of the title fights that I am most looking forward to uh, because I just think you get these two in a cage together and both really exciting, fun guys to watch. I don't see how this is not an awesome fight. No, I agree with you. Just speaking stylistically, uh, it's one of the more anticipated fights to close out the rest of the year. Uh, and even above and beyond that, because you've got a feud here that feels organic and feels real, it, it legitimately feels like Cody Garbrandt and TJ Dillashaw just flat hate each other. Uh, unlike, you know, what you get from, from a Colby Covington individual, it doesn't seem like they're just, uh, you know, overfilling the balloon here for no, no reason. It feels like, uh, this is a very personal matchup between Cody Garbrandt and TJ Dillashaw. You got Cody Garbrandt coming off, uh, that very impressive victory over Dominic Cruz at UFC 207. And then you got Cody Garbrandt, the former champ who lost his title to Dominic Cruz via very close split decision. But at the same time, feels like he's cooled off a little bit. He's been, he's been out of the, uh, or at least it feels like he's been out of the cage for a long time. He, he actually fought at UFC 207, but, uh, you know, we had the, uh, the kerfuffle over a potential Mighty Mouse fight. And so now we get TJ Garbrandt or T Cody Garbrandt against TJ Dillashaw, uh, and they're finally going to settle the damn thing in the cage. Yeah, well, and I think that this is one of the ones where we find out how excited and how hyped to get about Cody Garbrandt, because I got to admit, he surprised the hell out of me in that Dominic Cruz fight. Just, you know, maybe 
because of the respect I have for Dominic Cruz's abilities. I did not give Cody Garbrandt a whole lot of a chance to go in there and, you know, his relative inexperience. I mean, you know, a young guy, oh, he was 10 and 0 coming into that Dominic Cruz fight. And Cruz has just been, you know, on another level in that division for a while. And so I, I really did not think that he had a great chance and to go out there and to not just beat Dominic Cruz, but to be styling on him. And so I think though now you, you do have to ask yourself, like, all right, is is that going to end up being some kind of flash in the pan thing? Is he going to fall into many of the pitfalls that have uh, snared other UFC champions once they finally get there? And you know you got a whole different type of problem coming your way. You know it's been almost a year since uh, he won the title. Going out there and defending it, it for the first time is when you really kind of cement yourself as champion. And to go out there and do it against in a fight like this, which there's bound to be some emotions. Uh, you know tensions going to run high. Guys who kind of know each other fairly well. This will be an interesting test, and I think if he comes out of this one, then especially you know given his age, he's 26 years old. Do you start thinking, well, Cody Garbrandt might be here a while? Yeah, like you said, he's one of these sort of young emerging UFC champions, and Garbrandt is a guy who seems like he has the potential to be you know something of a star at least inside the sport of mixed martial arts. Not necessarily a crossover Conor McGregor type guy, uh, but Garbrandt seems like he could be sort of a fan favorite and a guy that that uh, you know folks really want to tune in to watch fight. For one thing, he looks the part, right? Tatted up, neck tattoos. That's what you're saying. Looks like an MMA fighter straight out of Central Casting. If you were going to make a NOS commercial, they would send you uh, Cody Garbrandt to stand in the other corner. Got one of those haircuts, one of those cool guy haircuts. And on top of that, he's got one big attribute that is often cited as a reason that people don't like to watch 125-pound, 135-pound fighters fight, and that is he knocks fools out. Yeah. He has got very heavy hands. So if he comes out of this T.J. Dillashaw fight smelling like a rose, and he rolls into a fight against Demetrius Johnson, which is, has been floated as a possibility and as a fight Cody says that he wants at 125 pounds, you feel like this could be a good launching pad uh, turn of events for Cody Garbrandt to at least become the kind of guy that hardcore MMA fans want to buy a pay-per-view to watch fight. Yeah, I mean, I, it might be looking too far down the road there. Uh, I also wonder, though, if... Is, you know, Cody Garbrandt and, and TJ Dillashaw, they got the whole coaching spot on tough to kind of foment that rivalry. And we've seen in the past that sometimes it's not always a great thing for fans to get to know you better as a coach on tough. Uh, they might find out that they don't like you that much. And also, you know, it just seems like you kind of, it stretches on forever and ever. And we're finally just like, please go ahead and get the fight over with already. Uh, I don't know. You know, it seems like it's people at this point, have to respect Cody Garbrandt's skills. I don't know that everybody is totally on board with Cody Garbrandt as the champion we deserve quite yet. Well, and then it's been a little bit of a rocky road for TJ Dillashaw also in, in the public relations realm, right? The, snake in the grass. Being outed as the snake in the grass, alleged snake in the grass. And then uh, now you've got these, you know, this story circulating about Chris Holdsworth and about a blow landed in practice by TJ Dillashaw that has kept Holdsworth out of the cage for a while. I think he was also on the MMA hour this morning, uh, kind of telling his story. So you got two guys here, both of whom have, you have skills for days, uh, but both of whom I think, you know, one way or another are going to make you feel something about them. 
uh, which we just got through with the conversation about how that's a good thing. So I guess we, we got to give them the benefit of the doubt also to say that, uh, you know, even if you don't like Cody Garbrandt or TJ Dillashaw, uh, they both bring something to the table that I think makes them interesting. Who are you at, picking here? At least. This is a tough one to pick, man, because, uh, I was surprised like you were by the Cody Garbrandt, Dominic Cruz outcome and just the way that fight went. And maybe because of that, I think you got to lean a little bit towards Cody Garbrandt just because we all know TJ Dillashaw's style is, is at least on the surface reminiscent of Dominic Cruz, like kind of yeah. a similar looking style. Uh, and the way that Garbrandt flew through Dominic Cruz makes me think he will land something on TJ Dillashaw. But I mean, also Garbrandt is one of these guys has only got 11 fights. You know, we haven't seen a ton of stuff from him. We don't have a huge body of evidence about him in his UFC career. So if it turned out he just couldn't catch up with TJ Dillashaw, I guess I wouldn't be that surprised either. Yeah. I, I do think you're right that it seems like when TJ Dillashaw, when we've seen him at his best, it has also come off as a little bit like a slightly off-brand Dominic Cruz. And if Cody Garbrandt had no problem handling the real deal Dominic Cruz, that makes me think that, you know, if I got to pick somebody, I'm picking Garbrandt here. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know, does the age make you think anything? Like Dominic Cruz obviously coming back off a, off a uh, you know, a period in his career where he was really hampered by injury, missed a lot of time. Uh, and yet, uh, TJ Dillashaw is still very much in his prime. So like, is it possible we get a better version of the thing that Dominic Cruz does against Cody Garbrandt? It's possible, but I guess I would still have to see a little more weakness in some area from Cody Garbrandt before I'd feel confident picking TJ Dillashaw. Do we have the odds for this one? You yeah. Know? Uh, it looks like Cody Garbrandt, kind of a slight favorite, minus 175, 180, something like that. TJ Dillashaw going off at like plus 150 thereabouts. That seems right to me. It does seem right to me, that too. That seems right to me. It's going to be a great fight, though. Looking forward to it. Great to see how these guys match up against each other. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, we just got finished talking about an anticipated title defense in the men's bantamweight division between Cody Garbrandt and TJ Dillashaw. I think you gotta say exactly the same thing about the women's strawweight title fight pitting Joanna Jacek, the champion, against Rose Namajunas here, uh, just to round out the triple bill of title fights at UFC 217. Both Joanna Jacek and Rose Namajunas uh, are popular fighters, popular personalities in this division. Clearly, Yedjechik now establishing herself as one of the more dominant champions on the UFC roster. But Rose Namajunas, a person who uh, dived into the UFC at a very young age and has has shown a lot of evolution and growth uh, throughout her journey to to this title shot, uh, seems like the kind of person that could give Joanna Yedjechik some troubles. Uh, I assume your hype level is high for this one, and, and what do you like going into this? Yeah, well, anytime Joanna and Jacek fights, my hype level is going to be pretty high. Uh, you know, and just the the intensity that she can bring to any kind of bout, uh, the different kind of intensity that Thug Rose can bring, uh, and I think that recently we've especially seen it seems like Rose Namajunas has found a, another gear in her career and found a little bit more like confidence with maturity. 
Still, though, a part of me thinks you're you're not quite ready for what Yuana and Chick is going to bring in there, uh, which, in a way, I have to admit, makes it seem like all the more exciting a fight because it seems like uh, Rose Namajunas kind of has to go out there and go really go after Yuana and Chick, but I feel like that's going to end badly. The Namajunas deadpan, yeah, is one of my it's favorite. On point. It's one of my favorite things going right now. Especially what was it? The uh, she's sitting by Holly Holm in the crowd at a recent UFC event where they put both. They did like a two shot, put them both on on camera. And you know Holly Holm's gonna smile at the camera. Yeah, hell yeah, she is. And Nama Yunus is just sitting there scowling like she's on the world's worst school trip. Yes, like she can't wait to get home. Yeah, like you know her her parents were like, no, we're going out to dinner as a family, and she wanted to do go over to Jan's house on Friday night and they were going to watch some videos, watch some videotapes <laughs> and she's not going to she, rent she, a movie. They're going to rent a movie. Yeah. She, she might have to go to Marie calendars with you, but she does not have to be happy about it. Or one of my favorite, uh, photos, favorite weigh in photos features the, the thug Rose deadpan where, uh, before she fought Paige Van Zant and Paige Van Zant is like, you know, doing like the cheerleader spirit hands pose, kind of just like big, you know, smiling grin, and then you look over at Rose Namajunas, who looks like she has just committed a murder and is stunned to find out that she is numb inside. We're, and before this fight, we are going to get the Namajunas deadpan opposite the Joanna Yedjechik, uh creepy alien that's going to try to climb up your nose yes. and strangle your brain. So that's going to be something to look forward to. Do you think Joanna Yedjechik went too far? in her trash talk leading up to this fight, some of which targeted uh, the mental health of Rose Nama Yunus, which has obviously been a topic uh, that Rose has been open about in the past. Yeah, you know, I'm not super pumped about that just because, I don't know, I I feel like in a lot of ways, Rose Nama Yunus has been kind of like disarmingly honest about stuff like that uh, or about like past trauma in her life and how mixed martial arts and, and martial arts in general has kind of helped her with that. Uh, and so I like, I like that. I think that that is a good thing for people to hear. Uh, people kind of need to hear that from somebody who's in the public eye and it helps uh, other people who might be dealing with the same kind of thing. So I, I'm not crazy about hearing that kind of used against her. Um, although, you know, I understand in a situation like that, UNA and Jaychik is probably going to take what seems to be there and work with it. I, I, it's hard for me to feel like she really intended any serious malice there. But maybe that's just you like her, so you give her the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we've seen Rose Nama Yunus flash some solid all-around skills, the rear naked choke victory over Michelle Watterson, rear naked choke victory over Paige Van Zandt, rear naked choke uh, victory over Angela Hill. Clearly, uh, Joanna Yedjechik is more of a stand-up fighter. Uh, is it possible Rose Nama Yunus comes into this fight with the game plan to take the, the striking-oriented champion off her feet? And if it goes to the ground, is it possible Nama Yunus gets some stuff done here? Or do we look at this split decision loss to Karolina Kovalkiewicz at UFC 201 that Nama Yunus suffered not that long ago, in July, late July of 2016, and think to ourselves, well, the simple MMA math tells us if you get split decision by Karolina Kovalkiewicz, Joanna Yajajic is probably going to have the goods here. Yeah, you get unanimous decision by Joanna uh, Yajajic. Yeah, I mean, it's tough for me to see how Rose Namajunas gets this to the ground 
if uh, Jacek doesn't want it to go there. Because her takedown defense was you know, surprisingly good when she came out and won the title. And I feel like it's only gotten better since then. Uh, it's, it's just hard for me to exactly picture how that happens. But, I mean, could it happen? Could they get in some kind of wild scramble and next thing you know, Doug Rose is on your back squeezing your throat? Yeah, sure. Like That, that could happen. It's tough for me to picture it. And I feel like the odds kind of reflect that. Because you see you know, three title fights and two of them, the odds are pretty close. This one... The odds are not. I mean, I think Yun Jaychuk is like a five to one favorite here. Yeah, uh, and you're right. We have seen Yoanna Jaychuk fight people in the past that have, have seemed like they wanted to come in with a grappling oriented game plan. Of course, Claudia Gadella uh, in July of 2016 also wanted to work that and had a little bit of success early. But Jaychuk is just another one of these people that it seems like it's extremely difficult to work that kind of game plan against her for 25 minutes. Like if you can't catch her in a submission early, she's going to start picking you apart with the, with her striking skills. And as you said, maybe you get unanimous decisioned by Joanna Yedjechik. I would add to that, that getting unanimously decisioned by Joanna Yedjechik as her last four opponents in a row have done, seems like a super painful thing to have happen to you. That yeah. just, just not fun. That's going to be 25 minutes in the wood chipper there just to get there. And honestly, if Rose Namajunas comes out of this with a decision loss rather than being stopped, I would see that as kind of a positive step forward for her in a way. Because I feel like this is a, you know, it's a tough, tough fight to have to take right now. And some of it seems like a consequence of UNA and Jacek has cleaned out the division so thoroughly that you start to reach down there a little bit uh, for maybe some contenders who could use a little more time to round out their game. It's similar to what we see happening in uh, men's flyweight with Demetrius Johnson. Um, I don't know, you know, it's possible that Namunos will come out there and surprise us all, but it just seems to me right now that Yen Jacek is on a different level. Yeah, and I mean, I guess if Namunos, I guess it would depend how it goes down, but if Namunos wins this, it would kind of uh, breathe some new life into that women's strawweight division, whereas you mentioned Joanna Yen Jacek has pretty much beat everybody. Uh, at least in the top five there. Uh, you, you would also think, also depending on how it goes down, that a rematch might be in order, which if you get Joanna Jacek against Rose Namajunas too, I don't know how anybody could argue with that. Uh, just kind of a strange time down there in the women's divisions, uh, which they lack a real focal point right now. Obviously, without Ronda Rousey, you've had uh, Cyborg Justino come in and, and recently... Uh, be crowned women's featherweight title and I think she could be a focal point but we've had some trouble setting up fights there you know you've got Amanda Nunes who hasn't really uh, grabbed a hold of of the fight watching public's attention and then you got Joanna Yajacek who seems like she has all of the star power in the world but obviously hasn't developed into a huge pay-per-view draw we don't think yet uh, so strange times there if, if Joanna Yajacek wins this uh, it creates a situation where I'm not totally sure what they do next and uh you know she's talked a little bit about trying to vie for the women's flyweight title also once that division gets going so i don't know man if you are going to put on sean shelby's shoes for a second here and assuming this thing plays out according to chalk uh where does joanna yajacek go after this yeah i mean that's a good question because i don't know if you're going to have a whole lot of success putting her basically in reruns uh, when, as you said, she hasn't totally taken off as a, a pay-per-view star. And putting her in a 125-pound title fight when that division is so new also seems a little weird. Like, hey, we created this division, we went through a whole season, the ultimate fighter to crown a champion. Um, now let's just bring the champion from a weight class down and see if she can nab that belt too. Plus then, as we've seen in the past, 
as much fun as that can be to have somebody who is a simultaneous two division champion. Uh, the UFC doesn't seem interested in letting anybody actually try to be that. So what are you doing? Then you're just going to make her take uh, one of the belts and throw it back into the mix, which honestly, at 115 pounds, maybe wouldn't be the, the worst thing. Then then you know what I'm thinking, Chad? Tournament. As always. Grand Prix. Just give us an opportunity for a tournament. We'll take it. Any opportunity. All right, let's do just... Also, Daniel Cormier wins that one as an alternate. <laughs> nice. Uh, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me was about a, a departure at ATT. My just saying stuff going to be about a departure over at Team Alpha Male. Well, not even quite a departure. Personnel related. More a, a move, kind of a lateral move in a way. But doesn't sound like he's super thrilled about it. Justin Buckholtz uh, was on apparently Stud Radio, which thank God for yeah, MMA that's a thing, always right? telling me about these radio shows Stud and podcasts. Radio. I have no wow. idea what it is. Uh, but was saying that, you know, he was, he has been the, the head coach at Team Alpha Male. And as he was very quick to point out, according to this article I read on MMAfighting.com, uh, they were very successful during that time. And kind of, he felt like a resurgence of Team Alpha Male after a, a short, rough stint. Uh, then according to him, quote, I went to Alaska and I came back and a lot of things have changed. It's been changing actually since we moved to the new gym four months ago. A lot of things change. I had a system that I put in place last year that I was in charge of and stuck to and made things happen, and now we've gone to a different system. Uriah explained it to me that there are five head coaches, so everyone is like a head coach, but I am no longer the head coach. I run the Muay Thai program. I'm only the Muay Thai coach. So yeah, you could say that I'm the Muay Thai head coach. Instead of doing all the practices and doing a ton of work, I'll get paid by the hour, and I'll just get paid by class and have one class a week where I was doing four classes and work. Doesn't sound like he's super thrilled about it. And then later there is a tweet where somebody's saying, we don't understand why this would happen, to which Justin Buckholz replies, yeah, I don't understand either. Ooh. I'm just saying, for one thing, if you're going to make some of these personnel changes, you probably want to get everybody on board before they go out there talking about how displeased they are with it. I'm also just saying, if you guys are going to put somebody into a title fight against a former team member turned snake in the grass... This is not the best time to have some discord in the ranks. I'm just saying. Just saying. Ben, folks, just saying stuff about human resources this week. It's a lot of people don't know that, that HR is a passion of mine. <laughs> On the show. Ben, do you remember 23 days ago when no, Walt Harris not at all. stepped up to fight Fabricio Verdum at UFC 216? Doesn't ring a bell. Lost by first round armbar? Don't even remember this morning. Well, then you might be excited to learn that you'll get another chance to see Walt Harris. Maybe you'll remember this one. He's going to do it again for the first time, brother, with Mark, the beer god, Godbeer. This weekend at UFC 217, heavyweight Wait. fight scheduled for the preliminary card on Fox Sports 1. Say that nickname again? Well, I decided since his name is Mark okay. Godbeer, right. that an awesome nickname for him would be Mark, the beer god, Godbeer. Are you at all affected by the monkey god? The monkey of God, depending on what. I mean, I'm just saying, was. if Mark Godbeer was in your fraternity house, you would almost certainly refer to him as Mark the Beer God Godbeer. Well, I'm right? not, not going to sit here and argue with that. I guess this week I'm just saying I'm happy that Walt Harris is going to get this opportunity for a 23 day turnaround fight, my, uh, Mark Godbeer this weekend. But also, I guess ask me again after it happens, because I'm reserving the right to change my mind. Just saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 217. And then we'll start to look forward to that jam-packed fight night 
120. We're doing Fight Night 120 Woo. after this, featuring the main event, Dustin Poirier versus Anthony Pettis. So that'll be a fun one. As of right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You don't feel like calling somebody the beer god in your fraternity house puts a lot of responsibility on their shoulders? Well, you got to It's a weight to carry, man. We're talking about a heavyweight MMA fighter here, though, right? Like... Okay. He, if he earns the nickname the Beer God, I assume he's going to see it as a as a challenge. Well, he would just take on. Come to find out, he's a wine cooler guy and man. Also, come to find out, I mean, what if you're the one who puts that nickname on him, asks him to carry the load? Twenty five years later, you discover he's an alcoholic. You got to feel some responsibility. Do you want to know what? Mark Dockier's really?